The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening. I hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. This episode is part two of the Les Marshall story. In the last show, Les told us all about his early career in top dressing, leading up to the point where he was just about to convert onto the Douglas C-47 Dakota as a top dresser with James Aviation. We'll take up the story now. Here's part two. Um, how, how did you get onto the Dakota from, from the Fletcher? Oh, well... Um that was an aeroplane that had always appealed to me to be able to, um, the DAC was, was a very interesting aeroplane to me and of course I, Aussie did the, did the big conversion on, on the first one he got, AZL, yep. got that going, uh, I think that did its first drop, its first load in December 55 if I remember rightly, uh, so that was up and running, Reg Plane was the first, the first pilot on that. Um, and then others came along, and then he got he got another couple operating. And then when I became part of the team through the Adrastra takeover, I, um, they sent a memo around the company that they were getting a another an additional DC three, and would anybody within the company like to have a go at it? Because I put my hand up, of course, for that. Yep. In the meantime, I'd had a, uh, <coughs> I'd had a bit of a misadventure. One one morning, I had a had a uh, an engine failure in a fletch. I was operating um, early one morning and had a complete and sudden sudden engine failure <coughs> in a loaded situation, fully loaded, and <laughs> it was at a pretty pretty critical stage of the of the um, flight and finished up in a big heap on the side of a hill. Uh, so I was off work for a while and um, it was about that time that uh, that the um, word got around that they were getting the extra DC-3. And so one of the, the operations manager came and saw me and said, well, if I'd like to do the SWAT while I was off crook for the conversion, um, I might have a have a good chance of getting the job. Yep. So um, 
while I was off recuperating with a broken back, I, um, I uh, swatted up on the on the notes for the uh, DC-3, passed the civil aviation exam of the day for the aeroplane for typewriting. Uh, so I had that out of the road when the um, when the position actually became available. So right. I was pretty much in a good good position then. So uh, I was given the given the job of um, of operating the the new Dakota that they just got from the NAC. Okay, okay. Well, um, just with the DC three. Um Paul and Steve have got a few questions here that they want me to put to you. So, one of them, gumboots out the window. Tell me about gumboots out the window story. Oh, I don't know whether we should talk about that one. Oh, go on. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't gumboots, they were shoes. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, how did that one come to be? That was... Um, Yeah, that was up north. Yeah, yeah, working working from Kaikoui Aerodrome and a lot of hard case farmers up there. You got the, the farming community generally that we serve were wonder, wonderful, wonderful folk. And um, made some very good long term friendships with a lot of the customers. But anyway, this particular instance was um, I had a briefing <coughs> to do this particular job. And it was uh, the farm itself was down in a valley, surrounded by quite high hills. And where I had to um, sow the fruit was up on the higher, higher slopes. So when you looked, if you were down at the in the bottom of the valley, down by the the house and the cow shed, and and um, in in the bottom of the valley, and if you looked up towards the skyline, it was very hard to get a true aspect of where the aeroplane was in the relationship to the boundary yep. boundary fence. Anyway, I, I started this, I had this, had a good briefing for this particular job. I knew where the boundaries were. And I'd made a start this particular morning and done two or three loads and stopped for breakfast <coughs> and drove back from the aerodrome back into Kaikoui town to the hotel for to have breakfast and as as we pulled up at the door there was a guy coming across the road he'd been just dropped off from a, a vehicle on the other side of the road and he stormed straight across the road to me I was in the company car and I was asked if I was the pilot of the DC-3 which I agreed that yes I was well he was he was Rather, rather agitated, to say to say the least. He was the farmer that I was working for, whom I hadn't met right. until then. And of course, he had been down <coughs> in the cow shed, watching me sow the higher the higher slopes from the valley, and he was looking up up towards the top of the skyline, and he thought I was sowing in the neighbour's place. He was totally convinced I was dropping this stuff in the, over the over the boundary fence. Yep. So he got himself really wound up and um, got himself into town somehow and he was still agitated, still in his cow shed gear, gumboots, painted green pretty much, yep. and very angry. So what did I do? I took him up to my room and told him just to quieten down have a wash and I'd take him down and buy him breakfast. So after a short period of time he I managed to console him and finished up good friends and I was able to convince him that I hadn't been putting the stuff in the neighbour's place at all. So we had a had an enjoyable breakfast, went back out to the aerodrome and then he came in the aircraft with me and I showed him exactly where I'd been putting the stuff. He was 100% happy. Well, <clears throat> and he invited me out out to their place for at any time. In fact, that hour, the weather was starting to pack up, so 
Yes, he went off home, that's right. But it was an invitation to come out to their place in the afternoon. So I drove out and we finished up down in a little pub, the Horaki Hotel, um, which was only a mile or two down the road from this particular farm. And we had a most, most enjoyable day in the pub, well, afternoon in the pub. And somehow or other, <clears throat> when I dropped him off home that night, he left his shoes in my, in my ute. Right. He was in his bare feet, gone home in his bare feet. So the next morning I thought, well, I'll drop his shoes back to him out, out of the aeroplane. So that's what that story is about. The, uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it was quite a hard property to sow because of the, the contour of the thing and with his house and sheds and everything in the bottom, flats in this, in this valley surrounded by hills. But anyway, I managed to get the aeroplane down into this valley, <coughs> shot across the house, had the side window open and at the appropriate time biffed the shoes out the, out the window. And it was a loud bang, <coughs> thing. I must have got picked up with the prop, slammed against the fuselage and then disappeared you see and then I had to wind my way out of this valley. Anyway, the um, when I went back to the hotel for lunch, he uh, he rang he rang the pub and had a yarn to me over the farm and he uh, over the phone, and he said my aim had been absolutely impeccable. They had um, they had a little picket fence not far from the back door of the house, just just for the fencing off the, the paddock around the house, and there was one shoe on the back lawn and the other one was about a hundred yards out in the paddock so uh, <laughs> he reckoned the aim had been pretty pretty spot on. Yeah. <laughs> and they were still intact? Uh -huh. They were still intact? Yeah well one was sliced he said one of the, one of them was um, had some gash marks in it and I guess the prop had done that so he, <laughs> he said he was going to nail that above the mantelpiece anyway. And, uh, <laughs> he got a great uh, he got a great buzz out of that. Yeah, I've forgotten the guy's name, but I'd like to bump him into him again sometime. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, we lived in Rotorua. <coughs> Rotorua was my home base, but moved moved over um, most, of, most of the North Island, really, with the aeroplane at different times. And I'd been working up north at... at um, Kaikoui or Wongarei or somewhere, Wongarei. And I left to come home on a Saturday afternoon. We'd got completed up there. So I flew home on a Saturday afternoon to Rotorua. And unbeknown to me, there was a uh, an air show um, underway at Rotorua that day. The, the, um, the guy in the tower at Wongarei was supposed to have passed that briefing on to me at the time when I left there, but he didn't. Right. So I, I, I trundle off home to Rotorua, call the tower and, at the appropriate time, and uh, I think I was told I was number 14 to land, or number 8 to land or something at Rotorua, which, which was just unheard of in yeah. those days, you know. Yeah. So I, I thought I, I knew the controller and I thought he just having me on. <clears throat> so I, I made comments to that effect, and then I, I was told in no uncertain terms that it was I, was I was arriving right in the middle of an air show, and he was pretty busy at the time. And yes, I was number eight to land. There was there were seven others, right, tearing around the place there. But anyway, he was very he was very considerate and very helpful, and managed to. Um, Make a gap in the in the activity for me, and I proceeded on in and and landed, <coughs> uh, and then where I normally parked the aeroplane, they had fenced off as a crowd crowd area, so I couldn't park where I usually did. So the controller suggested I just parked at the base of the tower uh, as an interim thing. So that was fine. So when I parked the aeroplane, it was um, it came to rest with the crowd line 
out on the left-hand side a little bit. <clears throat> so, because thinking nothing of it, we used to carry our car. We had a, uh, I had a little, the company bought us a mini, a thousand car. They got sick of paying taxi bills all the time, so they bought us, uh, the um, two of us operating the DAX. Bill Peterson was on the other one, and uh, I had AZA. So they both, uh, they bought us a, a mini each. And we had some aluminium ramps made, which we'd, we'd open the big swing doors on the, the big fuselage doors, put the ramps in place, just drive the car up the ramp, turn hard left at the top, and uh, drive it up and park behind the hopper yep. in the aircraft. Fire the ramps in the back, close the doors, and off we'd go. We had instant transport wherever we went. It was a neat operation, really yeah. was. Yeah. So. I'm coming home for the weekend, you see, so I've got my car in the back, <coughs> and um, parked where I did, which happened to be alongside the crowd line, climbed out of the aeroplane, opened the big doors, and of course all the crowd sees the car in the back of the aeroplane, they thought that was pretty neat. Yep. Then I put the ramps up to it and banked back the car down onto the, onto the hard put the ramps back up inside, close the doors, th put the, um, yeah, pick at the aeroplane if you like, you know, put the locks in and put my bag in the in the back of the car, waved to the car crowd and drove out the gate in my, in my little car, <laughs> thinking absolutely nothing of it. I've just arrived home for the weekend, yeah, yeah. which I'd done dozens of times. But of course, to a lot of people watching, it was a pretty pretty neat sort of a thing. Absolutely. They hadn't seen that done before. So I was told next week that um, by somebody on the, on the aerodrome down there that the, the air show had gone off very well and thanked me very much for arriving when I did because the crowd thought it was the highlight of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. And I wasn't even supposed to have been there. I was a, I was a naughty boy for turning up in the middle of their air show. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, yeah, all sorts of funny little stories. There's a note here that Mini wasn't tied down on a flight. Not tied down. That's another one. Yeah. Yeah, um, but that didn't happen with me. Bill Peterson, dear old Bill, he's gone now, but he was a World War Two P-40, Curtis P-40 man. And um, he'd been working his Dakota... Uh, in the Queenstown area, he'd done done quite a lot of work in, in off off Queenstown Aerodrome. Yep. They got completed, and the weather was was turning crappy. But he decided to come home anyway. <coughs> he was um, he intended to come back up to Auckland. Well, uh, they cleared Queenstown, and coming through the Lynn, uh, had his car in the back, of course. Of course, we didn't tie the things down. The, the the brief was when we first got the cars, we were supposed to latch them down. They had tie down rings on the they had freight floors in the in the aeroplane. Yeah. Tie down rings, and we were supposed to park the car, leave it in gear, put the handbrake on, and tie them down. But of course, the tying down bit never happened. You know, and the handbrake's on, and it's in gear. It's not going to go anywhere. That's fine. It didn't go anywhere until you, until Bill found out that they can go somewhere. They, um, so coming out of Queenstown in a howling nor'wester situation, creating a terrific amount of turbulence yeah. around the Lindus Pass area. And he hit a very, very violent patch of rough air. And there was all sorts of banging and crashing went on in the back of the aeroplane. Um, frightened him to the extent that um, the aeroplane was almost uncontrollable in the in the turbulence, so he diverted into Christchurch, <clears throat> and the, the noise that had been going on in the back perturbed him somewhat. So on landing at Christchurch, when he was able to go down the back and have a look, the mini had come off the, in the in this turbulence, the Mini had come off the floor and it had gone up and hit the top of the aircraft 
uh, in our aeroplane they'd, they'd taken all the soundproofing and, and interior lining out of the aeroplane so it was just a basic structure yep. in the rear fuselage so there was all the rib, the frames, the rib frames and um, the long rounds yep. holding the thing together. Well the Mini had lifted off the floor, it had gone up and hit the top of the aeroplane and the shape of the ribs had left crease marks in the hood. It, it had pushed the hood down to the extent, you know, there's a, a water guttering runs around the edge of the hood on yes. the Mini, yep. just above the windows. It had peeled the, the metal of the hood down over the windows, wow. but it hadn't broken any of the glass. <laughs> wow. it, none of the windows had broken. Anyway, the, wind, the Mini had gone up and smashed itself against the top of the aeroplane and then just as violently it had gone back down again and drove, it, it had driven the four wheels through the floor of the aeroplane and here she was sitting on its chassis oh, on the bottom of the body work, there's no real chassis on the things, but, and the wheels were impaled into the, into the floor of the aeroplane. So that's what all the noise was. That it, uh, it, so they had to jack the Mini. Once he settled down and the, the next day and the weather settled down, he carried on to Palmerston North where the aeroplane was maintained. Yep. Yeah, so they had to jack the, jack the Mini up, get the wheels out of the holes in the floor and um, <laughs> put a new floor in. Wow. I bet and he wasn't the, and popular. The, and the Mini went to the panel beaters, yeah. I bet he wasn't popular with the engineers when they saw that. Well, no, and we, we both started tying the minis down again, after, or tying them down for the first time yeah. after that for a while, but then slowly got a bit slack on that too and, and resorted to the old habits, but it never ever happened again. Right, right. But that, that's the sort of um, forces that can, can um, happen at times in the wrong sort of air. Now, I, I know that um, the top dressing, particularly in those days, um, you were working long hours, really to get to get the work done, and um, Paul had mentioned about uh, a time that you actually fell asleep. Do you remember that? Oh well, yeah, it was <laughs> it was a very easy thing to do, particularly in the big aeroplane in the Dakota. Yep. Um, on a long haul, some of the long haul jobs on a hot day. Um, nobody to talk to but yourself. Um, so, yeah. It, it it had it has happened. I've um, I've done it myself, and I know others that have done the same same thing. Not off for a while, yeah. <laughs> that's uh, that's during transit, not yeah. while we're actually working, right, not right. sewing the load, but going from A to B. Um, uh, there was there was one story: a guy working from Wanganui. <coughs> old hand, neat guy, and he was he was operating in an area up east of Tai Happy somewhere I think, in towards the ranges between Tai Happy and Napier. And um, he told me the story himself, it's not one that I've made up, but uh, he, he told me the story that on the drag up from Wanganui he was, he'd been working long hours and pretty tired and uh, he nodded off and when he came to he'd gone over the hills and he was back over the Napier side so he'd gone way past past the area and had to turn around and go back and so he's loaded yeah. <laughs> Gosh! <laughs> uh, yeah. That's as it was explained to me anyway. So when it happened to you, did you get a bit of a fright when you woke up and realised? Ah oh, no, you didn't You didn't go into a deep sleep but, yeah. but obviously this guy did. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, um, you get a bit droopy and nod off. Okay. Um, and there's a note about uh, the DC-3 being overloaded. Yeah, that was, uh, I guess we've all had that at some stage, but I had, a, I had a, quite a significant overload on one, on one occasion, well, two occasions. Um, generally <coughs> the, the, the accepted load was about five ton with the Dakota 
and we're slightly over what we should have been carting at, at that. The um, NAC, for example, NAC used to operate them at 26,900 pounds, all up weight. But their, their weight limitations were based on, on single engine performance at altitude, certain altitudes to clear terrain, general terrain in New Zealand. Yeah. <coughs> the, the, it wasn't a structural limitation, it was a performance limitation. Well, we, uh, we had a, um, an allowance to operate at 29,000 pound, which is quite a bit heavier than an NAC yeah. operation. Uh, but we could rely, hopefully, on a jettison system, which, if things turn to custard, you should be able to jettison a fair chunk of the load in a fairly, fairly quick period of time, yeah. which might help to ease the difficulty that you've got yourself into. Um, but generally, we, I guess we were a bit over 29,000, probably up around 30,000 pounds most of the time. Yep. Around about, with around about five tonne and some fuel. <coughs> but technically, I think it worked out at about four and a half tonne. However, this particular day, so as a consequence, most of the loads were, were standard loads, were around about five tonne. Yep. But with a lot of the different products that we sowed, there's a big difference in the specific gravity or the density of the material. Okay. Yeah. So you've got a, um, for example, lime. Sowing sowing lime is much heavier than superphosphate. So the level is much lower in the in the um, in the hopper, okay. but the weight is the same. Yep. I've got you. Yep. Higher. Well, this particular occasion occurred in, um, at Kai Tire. I was operating at Kai Tire and it was a product that I hadn't sowed before but I'd been cautioned that it was extremely heavy, heavier than lime. It was a very, very heavy product. It was a form of, of um, basic slag. It, I, think, I think it was imported from Belgium if I remember rightly. Okay. It was in bags, small bags, but they were heavy, very, very heavy. And there was um, 21 tonne of this stuff turned up on the aerodrome. It was all in bags and it had just come off a weighbridge, so the weight was guaranteed. We knew the 21 tonne was there. And there was a team of guys to um, open this stuff up, open the bags up. And yeah, this particular occasion, the, the um, I'd been working off to the south of the long runway at Kai Tai during the morning. That's right. It was a lovely day, only a little bit of wind blowing, and um, everything had gone fine. We stopped for lunch and a refuel, and then I was to start start this 21 ton after lunch. So I explained to my driver that we'd do um, three five-tonne loads initially and the last load would be a six-tonner. Yep. Fuel level, fuel quantity would be down then after I'd done the first three loads. Right. And, um, so the fuel load would be down and the six-tonner would be fine for the last load. He'd been playing up a little bit this particular individual and um, I was, it pushed me to the limits on one or two occasions previous to this with, with some overloading and anyway I spelt all this out to him and yes he was quite clear in his mind what what was required and um, there was two very good weighing systems uh, there was the the loader, the Fletcher loader that we were using to load the, the container on the uh, DC3 loader. Both both systems had big scales. One was on a, on a load cell arrangement, more calibrated, <coughs> very visible, very easily read. So anyway the first load goes in <coughs> and as it's going in I could feel the aeroplane settling on the 
on the undercarriage and I thought, well, this feels a bit heavy. <clears throat> anyway, I went to move off and yes, it was heavy, all right. It took a lot more power to move the aeroplane, a large amount of power to move the aeroplane. And uh, this particular time, the wind had swung a little bit to the, from the north, just a, only about five knots, so I went right to the southern end of the runway. Feeling a little bit dubious because the aeroplane just felt so heavy. Yeah. It was just dead in the water, really. Um, anyway, off I go. And the, the controller had, had displaced the threshold at the northern end of the runway. I think the seal, the, the surface was starting to break up. And he'd put a row of marker, marker cones about 150 metres in from the end of the runway, the northern end. Anyway, I, I, I start my takeoff roll out to the north, <coughs> and yeah, um, <laughs> it wasn't feeling good. So I upped the power a little bit to, as far as it was safe to go. And um, by the time I really started to become concerned, it was too late to stop. I was I was committed. So the tail slowly slowly lifted and um, bolt, I bolt straight through his row of orange marker cones he, um, that he had placed very neatly across the runway. They blew to all points of the compass and I rocketed off the end of the strip and really did a Fletcher type takeoff by diving into the, into the valley at the northern end of the strip. Um, it was a bit of a knife edge operation here for a while, she was very heavy, so I got myself into a fair old um, state for this, uh, for this particular load, and I thought, well, this boy of mine's going to have to go, you know, you can make you old before your time, this yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. So, sewed the load satisfactorily, came back. And I thought, well, I got away with that one. He's got the next one all set to go, and there's only a little heap left on the ground, small amount. So I took the next one, which was about the same as the first one, grossly overloaded. And then the last one, um, 16 year, the last one, there wouldn't have been five ton in the last one. So I figured those first two loads were nearer, the best part of eight ton. Mm. Um, as I said, it was an extremely dense, dense material, and um, it was full. It was flowing out the top. I was told by witnesses. So, yeah, that was the biggest overloads I had. So, um, unfortunately, I had to give. I felt it was prudent, and I gave the man the heave ho after that. So I gave him a one-way ticket off the place after Fair that enough. one. That's, that sort of thing. Um, as I say, you can make the old before your time. Did um, did you have to get the aircraft checked out for stresses and everything after that? No, no. The, I'm sure there was no no problem with the, with the airframe, um, and and the aeroplane handled it, but with difficulty. I yeah. certainly knew I had a load on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, and that's the amazing part of that aero of, of, of that aeroplane. You know, she's an amazing device. Yeah, it really yeah, was definitely. Going back to the earlier days of the, in the Cessna, um, this particular day, I, we, it was a it was a very nice airstrip, big, big long airstrip, but it had a um, a fence at the end. I think it was about five hundred yards long or something, dead flat. A couple of fences at the end. Uh, and then some distance away, about another 50 yards on, was a was a gorse hedge. And I'd, I'd worked there all morning, it was fine, and then the farmer turned up with a load of <coughs> superphosphate that had got wet and asked me if I would try and sow this stuff for it. Well, foolishly and against my better judgment, I said, yes, I'd have a go. 
But when we loaded it into the aeroplane, I thought, oh, this was not a good decision. Um, the particular hopper outlet on those aeroplanes were quite small and they had three louver doors in them when you operated them. The lever inside it moved the three the three doors so it was it was very easy to jam jam these doors, particularly with wet wet super. Yep. And the um, a brother of the chap that I was doing the work for, he was there and he'd he'd never flown before as far as I'm aware and he asked me if he could come for the ride. So once again, that was a bad call as well, as well as having a load of wet super on board. I foolishly said, yes, well, okay, jump in. Uh, so away we went. And, <coughs> excuse me, the wind, wind had dropped off. The weather was in a state of change, and it was, it was, it was one of those freaky situations where partway down the strip, the... the I was told afterwards that it got, uh, became almost a full windsock pointing down, down, downwind, same way as I was going, which was a downwind gust on a takeoff. Yeah. So, of course, <clears throat> I couldn't stop. It was too late to try and stop. I attempted to jettison at the end of the strip, and nothing came out, or very little came out because of this wet stuff. So it was was turning to custard very rapidly. So the aeroplane cannoned on through the first fence. I got it partially airborne before we went over the next fence, but then it fell back onto the ground again and was heading towards this course hedge. I was still determined to make the thing go at this stage. I thought I was going to get away with it, go through this gorse hedge. But unbeknown to me, the gorse hedge was hiding uh, quite a quite a uh, high earth embankment on the edge of a drain. And it was about a three foot high earth wall with this hidden by this gorse hedge. So it was pretty much a solid hedge. Yeah. So the aeroplane gave up trying to fly when we went through the gorse hedge. It um, tore the gear off, stood up on its nose, and um, fortunately we didn't go over on our on the on our back, but um, and it settled back down. But it was finished up in the most undignified position. I called across to my passenger, you know. Are you all right? He said yes. He was okay. I told him to brace during the takeoff run. I told him to. I said we're not. We're having difficulty. You brace. Put your arms up on the on the panel. He'd done that. So then, when we came to rest, I could smell fuel. I couldn't get out my side. The door door was jammed. I asked him if he was okay. He said yes. He was fine. So I said kick your door open, which he did. He clambered out. And he ran. He ran as fast as I've seen anybody run. And I, I haven't. I've, I've never seen the man since. <laughs> he just, he just disappeared over the side of the strip and gone. <laughs> haven't seen him since. That was a long, long time ago. <laughs> yeah. So it, it wasn't a very pleasant first experience for him, I'd say. No, no, not at all. He can't even really call that a first flight, can he? <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't. No. <laughs> Didn't quite get there. Yeah. Okay. Between the driver and the pilot, you you know you work as a team, and generally get along really well, become good buddies. Otherwise, there's not a lot of point in going to work. Yeah. And in this particular case, my good mate, we'd worked together for a long, long time. He's very experienced. A ladder driver, and as a walk around drill in the mornings before you go anywhere, uh, we each had our little duties to do. <coughs> and I'd do the left hand side of the aeroplane, and Max would do all everything on the right hand side of the aeroplane. This is the walk around before we um, went off in the mornings. Yep. Check the fuel both sides, walk around, make sure there's no nothing happened overnight to the thing and everything's in order before we climbed in. 
and started the side of the aircraft. This particular morning, we'd just arrived and uh, taken the covers off the aeroplane. Max was doing his walk around on his side, and part of the walk around on each side was to undie the, untie the picket chains. We had a at Ardmore here, we had a little little block of concrete, which was quite heavy, set into the ground on each side, and a tie down chain was was um, fastened into the concrete, which we'd then um, hook onto the onto the wing, yep. just to hold the aircraft down in strong winds. And of course, pretty essential to untie these things in the morning before you tried to go anywhere. Yep. And part of our routine was Max did his side, did the right-hand wing, and, and I did my side. So we were just about to do all that when a friend of Max's turned up and stopped to talk. Yep. Yep. So I carried on and did my side, untied my wing and folded the covers and got into the aeroplane, <clears throat> checked the fuel on my side and just waited for him to finish his conversation with his friend, which he, which he did, jumped on board, closed the canopy, fired up, all set to go, you see. So I got to move off from the pickets and she's a bit slow, <clears throat> needed a little bit more power than, than usual and I didn't really take a great deal of notice. but got rolling, taxied out onto the runway and away we went. And as soon as we got into the air, the aeroplane had a sort of a snatchy feel with it, but there was a little bit of wind there as well. And yeah, had a had this bit of a snatchy feel on the on the control column. I could feel it on the way out and I I meant I mentioned to Max, I said a bit of bit of turbulence unusually um, low down here, you know, it's been right from, right from um, and stick really, right on the aerodrome. Yep. We carried on out to the west coast, we were working, and it had a bit of a peculiar feel with it all the way out, but I just blamed it on the, on the wind conditions at the time, until we landed on the strip. And there's a lot of banging and crashing and thumping going on, and I saw Max turn bright scarlet, and his eyes stood out. <laughs> and it finally, it had, it had just dawned on him what what he'd forgotten to do, and it had just dawned on me what he'd forgotten to do. <laughs> what what we'd done was pulled the whole concrete block out of the ground. The chain hadn't failed, and we towed it all the way out to the west coast. <laughs> and when when we landed on the on the strip out there, of course, it had bounce still hanging on the chain it had banged up underneath the wing and it did a little bit of damage all over the undersurface of the wing this great lump of concrete here yeah, so um, Ooh, yeah. we untied the untied the chain and um, carried on to Hamilton to have this damage attended to but I don't know I don't know how I explained that away I, I sort of I sort of forget those details there. Um, <laughs> it would have been a bit hard to explain, I think. So I, I, I can't remember how, how I resolved that one. <laughs> Going back to my glider, the glider towing days, and my mate, who I still see frequently these days, and he would he would confirm he he would confirm this tale. Yep. Um, he was he was doing the gliding instructing and I was doing the towing and we turned up on the Saturday morning before anybody else all keen to go and it was a foggy morning at Matamata, typical Waikato fog. Yep. So we pulled the glider out of the out of the hangar and rigged it. <coughs> pulled the tiger out, warmed it up and then shut it down again um, and waited waited for this fog, you see. Anyway, we're getting pretty impatient after an hour or two. It was a good old wake out of fog. And then it appeared to be thinning somewhat, and we could see the sun. So it shows the stupidity of youth, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, we thought we'd, and Peter was as bad as me, because he agreed to do it. We thought we'd do a weather check. 
see our, what the hell we thought we were going to prove, I don't know, but we could see the sun. And we thought, well, it's, it's breaking up. It's hard to credit that you could do such a dumb thing, but we did. Um, we hooked the glider on the back, on the, on the back of the tiger, got everything lined up, and it just sounds so stupid. But anyway, off we go. I take up slack slowly on the rope. He's in the glider. Yep. Nobody else around, you see. And we thought, yeah, it's, it's the fog's breaking up, so he'll be able to do a quick circuit around in the sailplane. Well, of course, we get going <coughs> under tow. Just get airborne, and the sun disappears. It's gone. So I had the compass of all things. I had to, I, while I was warming up, I turned the grid ring of the compass around, and I had the compass set for our takeoff vector. Get airborne. So climbed on instruments in the time with the glider on behind. It this really s sounds like a line shoot, doesn't it? But I'm not proud of the fact that we did this. We climbed up through the cloud, and it was, of course, it was much, much thicker than what we hoped it would be. <coughs> the sun disappeared, and I don't know what height we popped out at, six, seven hundred feet, something like that. Yeah. Into the bright blue, and just at the same time as the Civil Aviation Piper Apache goes past in a turn, He's, I, we came up out of the out of the top of the fog, and he goes past, off off to the front, and I read the read the radio as he went past. You think, oh my Godfather, civil aviation. <laughs> so, <laughs> climbed just clear of the fog by a hundred or two, two three hundred feet to see that the fog extended everywhere, but it was breaking up on the edge of the, on the edge of the aerodrome. But I did it. Gentle, right one turn, Peter hang on the back in the glider, and then we descended back into the fog on the reciprocal of what we'd climbed out on. Yep. With him still on the rope. Quite incredible. So I towed him downhill, <laughs> back back down through the fog. He, <laughs> he told me afterwards he was putting the spoilers in and out on the on the glider. And he stayed on the rope until we came out the bottom of the fog, which was, I don't know, a couple of hundred feet, something like that, or lower. The, the mist, had, the fog had actually lifted a little bit in this time. Yep. So then he unhooked, <coughs> and I slid around on the final and landed, and he came in behind me in the sampler. And then, just after that, in comes the Apache, the CAA Apache. Oh man, how are we going to get away with this? You know. So, taxi the tiger over to the over to the pumps, and the Apache taxis up to the pumps. And it was a uh, it was a guy by the name of George Arkley, who was a local, or well, not a local, but he was one of the CAA. Um, what do you call them? Airborne traffic cops, I suppose. It was Tony Glowacky was one, George Arkley was another. They'd just wander around and uh, try and keep an eye on, on the activities of some of these tearaway young fellows in the, yeah. in the system. Well, I noticed that George looked very white. He was very pale and he had perspiration on his brow and he beckons me over <clears throat> and he said, were you the pilot of that tiger moth? And of course I've got my helmet in my hand and my, my leather jacket on, there's nobody else around. So <laughs> it was a bit of a dumb question, but I couldn't really say no either. <clears throat> so he said, come with me. And I thought, well, here it goes. So he took me into the clubhouse and he asked me what I thought I was doing climbing up through fog, 
with a glider on the back. So I explained to him just as as it had happened, you know, and I said it was an absolutely dumb thing to do. We thought the fog was breaking and my mate in the glider was keen to do a gliding circuit and all those sort of things. So he listened to all of that. And he said, have you learnt from that? And I said, certainly have. And he says, well, lad, he said, I'll tell you something. He said, you've absolutely saved my bacon this morning. And well, how's that? He said, I was out of gas. He said, I was, I'd had no options left. And when you appeared at the top of the fog, he said, you absolutely saved my bacon. He said, I didn't know where the aerodrome was. He hadn't seen it. He was looking for it, couldn't find it. He had actually flown from Paraparam bound Hamilton that morning. Hamilton was covered in fog. So he had circled, he had held for a while at Hamilton, and then he had kept himself enough fuel, he thought, to get to Tauranga. On his way across to Tauranga, around about or a bit before he got to where we were, he had recalculated his fuel again and found that he didn't have enough gas to get the tower on. Right. So he was out of gas and everything else was covered in fog. It was just a big Waikato fog. Wow. So he'd run out of options. He was a CAA safety man, out of gas, <laughs> on top of fog. All of a sudden we appear out the top of this fog, so he followed us down, followed us back down. So he shook my hand and he thanked me so much for saving his bacon. Yes, so it was uh, quite a neat ending to, it, to what was an absolutely stupid story. Yeah. And it's as true as I sit here, because Pete Blakebrother, who was in the glider, he would vouch for that. We, we, we often comment on that, on that little tale. Yeah. Isn't it amazing how things like that happen in yeah. aviation? That you hear these stories and... I suppose, but, yeah. yeah that, people, that, that, people that have got no options left and then suddenly something happens like that. It's quite right. And George really was in the cart. Yeah. He was, he was, um, he, he had no more options left. Yeah. Um, Fantastic. So he settled him, he, he fueled his aeroplane. He waited till the fog had cleared and, he, and, he, and then he went wherever he was going. But um, yeah. and then I met him on many occasions after that. When I got operating commercially, we'd cross paths every now and again, and um, yeah. Yeah, often mentioned that little tale. Yeah. Right. Um, something about Uncle and Lodestar crash. Yes, yeah, that was the uncle. The other, the other uncle, the other one of my mum's brothers. He was the one that had flown during the war. Yes, he was. He was tragically killed in a uh, in a Lodestar. Accident, Lockheed Lodestar, um, operating out of Dannyburg in the Wairarapa. Was it a passenger or? No, no, no. He's top racing with it. Oh, yeah, they right. use Lodestars. Yep. Field, um, Field Air, who was an East Coast company, Gisborne-based company. They operated um, Lockheed Lodestars initially before Aussie James started the DC three going. So. Right. Uh, they were, yeah, the Lodestar was, was um, I think it was an earlier variant of the of the Hudson, the Hudson bomber that was used during the war. Yeah, yeah so, so there was a Lodestar and then the Ventura was the next one up. Yeah. But yeah. Um, and Ted had flown Venturas during the war, the Ventura bombers. Oh, okay. So he'd been on a Lodestar for a long time and um, he met his end on a on a um, on a job east east of Dannyburg Den towards the coast from Dannyburg. Oh, right. Did that um, affect the way that your family saw you flying? Sorry. Did that affect the way that your family saw you flying these top dressing planes? So, did did they worry about you more after that, or? Oh, I don't know. Um, Ted was. Um, I'd ridden with him quite a bit in the Lodestar, <coughs> um, and he had sort of, he was about 45 then, if I remember rightly, and he was thinking of quitting then, he had sort of had his fill of it, um, but he, yeah, 
this accident happened prior to him making that decision, of course. Yeah. Um, but no, they, they, I think my dear old mum, who was Ted's brother, she used to worry and fret a bit, as mums do, don't yeah. they? Yep. And, uh, but she didn't let on too much. Yeah, well that's, um, when did that happen? That was early 60s, very early 60s, 61, I guess. Um, I'd been, I'd, I'd been doing a lot of crop spraying <coughs> around the Canterbury Plains area at the crop time of the year. Um, and we'd operated from Timaru, which stayed in a, in a pub in Timaru, the old Hydro Grand. And I was leaving to go to a place called Kurel, which is up the Waitaki River, just just down from Benmore, where they built the big Benmore Hydro scheme. Yep. And. <coughs> I had my loader driver with me and we left left Timaru bound for Kurao and it was a beautiful clear morning, not a cloud in the sky. And as we progressed on could see the see Mount Cook sticking up very proud and above everything else here in the Alps, so I thought we'd better go and have a look at the top of Cook. So I climbed up to a bit over 12,000 feet, 12,500 feet or something, and circled the, circled the top, the very, very pinnacle of Mount Cook. Yep. And it was a magnificent sight, never forgotten it. Beautiful. <clears throat> and then it happened. All of a sudden I needed a pee. And I don't know whether it was the allergy or what it was, but I needed a pee more than I'd ever needed it. <laughs> Worse than I'd ever needed a pee before. Yeah. And what do you do? So down below, it was um, the Mount Cook Company were operating their tourist flights out of, the, out of the old Hermitage airfield, which was just a big square paddock yeah. close to the Hermitage. So I thought we've got to get down there quick. So I pointed the spinner straight down at the old Mount Cook field. And oh, the agony on the way down. And I made a bit of a garbled radio call to the tourist guys to say that I had an onboard emergency. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be landing straight in from the top of Cook. rocketed in over the boundary fence, <coughs> landed and the aeroplane had barely come to a stop and I had the door open and I was out, leant on the strut and un unzipped myself and leant on the strut. Oh dear, the relief was was huge. And then I hear a voice from a mate inside, do you realise you're on candid camera? <laughs> What do you mean? Have a look over there. So I looked over there and up until that stage I hadn't noticed it, but only a matter of a few yards away, 50 yards away, some was a line of buses, the tourist buses, yep. that were feeding these, the tourist aeroplanes. And there was a line of, line of Chinese, I guess they were, or Asians anyway, all with their cameras out, clicking <laughs> away, so here was I putting on my little act right in front of this line of buses and I hadn't, I honestly hadn't seen them at that stage, you know, you, get, you become pretty preoccupied, don't you, when, you, yeah. when you've got to go. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dearie me. So I finished doing what I was doing and zipped myself up, waved to the crowd, climbed back in the aeroplane and disappeared <laughs> into the distance. <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> We'll leave the story there and let Les pick up the story in the next episode where he talks about acquiring and owning his Ryan ZKRYN.
That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Hopwood.